Uh, greetings. Um, it's my honor to introduce our speaker today. Rick Herman sends his regrets for those of you who think that Rick only does administrative work and service work. He's actually giving a prestigious keynote lecture at a conference at Princeton University, so he does occasionally find time for his own scholarship as well. Though he assures me that he's planned things that if they go well, he'll be here in time for the Penn State game uh, tomorrow night. Our speaker today is, is one of our postdoctoral fellows here at the Mershon Center, uh, Rob Rakov. Rob recently defended his PhD at the University of Virginia, where he has worked with Mel Leffler. Uh, the dissertation deals with the important subject of U.S. policy toward the non-aligned states and the non-aligned movement during the 1960s, especially during the administrations of uh, Kennedy and Johnson. Rob earned his uh, B.A., uh, in political science at Stanford University before switching to history for a master's degree. He did an MA in Stanford in European history before then um, moving to the University of Virginia to complete his graduate work. Last year, he was uh, one of uh, a handful of doctoral fellows at Virginia's um, Miller Center and this year he joins us. This is two consecutive years he's had an opportunity to just write. And his plan, he's going to give us a, a focus on the dissertation as a whole, but uh, concentrate especially on, on one, one chapter, one, one aspect of it. And his plan this year is to do a lot of writing and revising. Rob? Ah, well, thanks very much, uh, Professor McMahon, for the introduction. Thanks to all of you uh, for, for coming out this Friday to hear about such vivid uh, historical incidents as the Indian invasion of Goa in 1961. Uh, uh, and, of th and, of course, thanks to the Mershon Center for hosting me here today and, of, and more broadly here this year. Uh, our topic today uh, for this hour is uh, Kennedy's reaction to decolonization, very specifically uh, the reaction of his administration to four very particular, very defining crises in Africa and Asia, and uh, the administration's search for a, a broader policy to deal with the, the lingering phenomenon of, of empire in the 1960s. Now, I came to this topic in, as Professor McMahon indicated, my uh, examination of a much broader topic, namely Kennedy's policy of engagement toward the non-aligned world. He entered office convinced that the United States was losing critical ground in the Cold War against the Soviet Union within the Third World. And by Third World, I mean states uncommitted to the Cold War. And the classic meaning of the term third world meant the uncommitted world. Not, It didn't have the racial connotations that I think attach themselves to this term today, nor necessarily the, this quite the same geographic connotations. Uh, this meant the uncommitted world, with the first world, of course, being Western Europe, Japan, the United States, and so forth, and the second world being the Soviet Union, Eastern Europe, Communist China. Uh, this was Kennedy's... Uh, one of his real driving concerns as a foreign policy president. And from this emerged what I have termed uh, the policy of engagement. There are 
as I see it, three major components to this policy. One was uh, Kennedy's increased emphasis on aid toward the uh, developing world, toward the non-aligned world, though also, of course, Kennedy's better-known aid initiatives included the Alliance for Progress, which was directed at Latin America. He was deathly afraid of communist revolution south of the Rio Grande. Um, Presidential diplomacy was, I think, the second of the triad. He was an aggressive practitioner of presidential diplomacy. He believed very strongly in meeting uh, foreign leaders, particularly those of a possibly uh, somewhat unreliable character, the folks who his predecessor, Dwight Eisenhower, often butted heads with, uh, and communicating his views, attempting to forge dialogue, particularly through strong interpersonal ties with these, with these individuals. But these two were not nearly enough to, to really base a, a, a policy upon. So the third was, of course, dealing with, the, dealing with the core issues that really motivated states in the non-aligned world. And circa 1961, this was in large part, uh, th- these were in large part questions related to empire. Uh, There were a number of lingering colonial questions, even as decolonization had taken root already throughout much of what had once been the colonial uh, European world. So um, let's just get a little sense of the horizon in 1961 as Kennedy was taking office. I would say that the the Eisenhower-Kennedy transition was, if not the most fraught transition in the Cold War, certainly it merits a a placing in the top three. I mean, one doesn't want to... uh, and maybe belittle the, the Truman-Eisenhower handoff or the, or the Carter-Reagan handoff, but it seemed a pretty dire moment in the Cold War and in, in, and in really the uh, world history. Uh, Kennedy was inheriting from Eisenhower some very pronounced Cold War crises, Berlin foremost, but also a dangerous situation in Southeast Asia, uh, Laos in- inclusive, but Further down the road, of course, we can see Vietnam and, of course, the the growing problem of uh, Cuba and Castro in the Caribbean. Colonial crises had also blossomed forth as Kennedy was taking office, and and these two here, Congo and West New Guinea, were looking particularly volatile by uh, January of 1961. And these were, these were issues where Kennedy felt his predecessor had, had not reacted subtly enough or promptly enough and had acted in a way as to complicate the position of the United States with the Afro-Asian world. The Soviet Union seemed newly vigorous. Nikita Khrushchev, the uh, Soviet general secretary, had a uh, declared policy of, of sponsoring wars of national liberation. In early 1961, Khrushchev gave a much-noted speech on the subject that alarmed Kennedy. Kennedy (coughs) ensured that his advisors read the Wars of National Liberation speech uh, and and, and gave it its proper due. Uh, The Soviet Union seemed to be in a blessed position as it sought to expand its influence and reach across Africa and Asia. The Soviet Union did not have, like the United States did, European allies that were still holding colonial possessions. The Soviet Union could quite freely condemn colonialism vehemently and offer African and Asian peoples vital assistance toward expelling the last colonial holdovers. The United States had a much more complicated position. It had a number of NATO allies that were still colonial powers. Uh, It had been wrangling with them for more than a decade. Uh, 
one shouldn't uh, understate the depth of uh, friction between the United States and its European allies before 1961 over imperial issues. Even in the immediate wake of the Second World War, there was, there was quite a bit of that. Uh, but there was a certain guilt by association here, and uh, this had deepened during the Eisenhower years. There had, been, there had settled in, uh, particularly in the Afro-Asian world, an image of the United States as inattentive to, uh, or even very, the, the concerns of, of colonial peoples, or even the United States as a reactionary power. So let's very quickly have a look at uh, the Eisenhower years and the, the problematic legacy that uh, Kennedy felt that he faced as he came into office. Um, and this is really maybe at best a greatest hits list or an EP at best. But uh, let's, um, I mean, I think these are some of the things that really leap out at me and, um, with regard to this topic. The one thing that always came across my mind or it really struck me as I was looking at how, uh, how the Eisenhower years are remembered, looking at documents from the 1960s, was how often people would, would say, you know, you're taking things back to the, the age of John Foster Dulles when they wanted to criticize the direction of U.S. foreign policy. John Foster Dulles, Eisenhower's Secretary of State for, the, for most of his administration, was a deeply divisive figure as far as uh, African and, and uh, Asian leaders were concerned. Uh, Non-aligned leaders such as India's Jawaharlal Nehru or Egypt's Gamal Abdel Nasser or Indonesia's Sukarno Usually found Nasser, sorry, usually found um, Dulles to be very prickly. They regarded his view of the Cold War as Manichaean. He seemed to be someone who was prone to dividing the world into the categories of friend and foe. Uh, early on in the Eisenhower years, Dulles had shown a, a driving concern for ringing the Soviet Union with allied states. This had put him at odds with both India and Egypt um, as he as he rushed to create the Middle East Treaty Organization, uh, cementing a, a treaty organization that included Pakistan and Turkey, Iraq, and Iran, alienating both Nasser and Nehru. Further on down the road in 1956, Dulles uttered words that would long outlive him um, when he, during a commencement address at Iowa State in, in Ames, Iowa, said, in a, I think a, a speech that was in, intended entirely to be read by domestic audiences. I think he hoped that it would, it may not have even traveled outside of Iowa, but it did. He said that uh, alliances, America's system of alliances was its safeguard uh, in the world. Neutrality was an outdated concept. Moreover, it was immoral. Uh, this, this notion that states could somehow disinterest themselves from the, uh, the overarching global conflict, the Cold War, and this was widely read and widely reacted upon. Um, and as a result, Dulles became a, a fairly infamous figure outside of the United States within, within the non-aligned capitals. And this, this image lasted with him until his death. Was this all, is this all that someone should say about Dulles? I would say not. Dulles had subtler views than this. He was making, I think, in part a domestic appeal. But it's a little bit like Reagan's evil empire speech. That remark had legs and it really <coughs> ran away from him. Um, but there are still particular instances where the Eisenhower Dulles foreign policy, with its emphasis on maintaining alliance integrity, uh, tended to rub non-aligned states the wrong way. One case that I'll mention very briefly here, we'll be coming back to it in greater depth, is Goa. Portugal maintained colonial enclaves on the Indian subcontinent, the largest of which was Goa, which is 
now a state within India. Uh, and the Eisenhower administration maintained a policy of effective neutrality on this, except on occasion when it would make statements referring to Portugal's overseas territories. India did not take kindly to these kinds of references, which seemed to legitimate the uh, Portuguese empire overseas. This was an added irritant to Indo-American relations during the Eisenhower years. Secondly, a bit more gravely, was West New Guinea. Similarly to the case of Goa, uh, the Dutch maintained um, a colonial remnant of empire uh, on the western half of New Guinea. They had held on to this as Indonesia gained its independence. The Indonesians never really maintained, never really had any kind of military upper hand there. And the Dutch contended that this should be regarded separately from Indonesia. The, the legality of whether, it should, of whether West New Guinea should be lumped in with the rest of the archipelago is muddy and it, revol- it revolves around a lot of treaties that have probably crumbled into dust by now. But uh, this, was, this was a source of grave contention between Indonesia on the one hand and the Netherlands on the other. Both countries at different instances asked the United States if it might mediate in the dispute during the 1950s. Again, the position was neutrality. Dulles thought it best not to get involved. Um, he didn't want to really get, tie up the hands of the United States. In, in, in this instance, this involved kicking the problem down the road. And in any event, the United States policy toward Indonesia took on a more confrontational turn uh, by, the, you know, by the early years of Eisenhower's second term. By 57 and 58, convinced that Sukarno, the Indonesian president, was tilting toward the Soviet bloc, uh, Dulles and Eisenhower supported his overthrow. Um, they would had a good record with coups earlier on against Iran and Guatemala. They had reason to think that it would work in this instance. It did not. Uh, They sponsored rebellions on the peripheral islands of the Indonesian archipelago, and it blew up in their faces quite literally. Finally, the the case of the Congo is, I think, very defining, and that's worth a bit of unpacking because this was um, perhaps Eisenhower's most, um, his his worst gift to his successor, I would say. Um, In short, the case here is that the Belgian Congo was very hurriedly decolonized in 1960. Uh, And the Belgians did it in such a way as to uh, encourage reasonable suspicion that they intended to still govern things behind the scenes. There were two rival factions claiming uh, control of the central government, um, one belonging to the Belgian favorite, uh, President Joseph Kasavubu, the other, the more populist, uh, Patrice Lumumba. Eisenhower was deeply scared by Lumumba, and he sided with the Belgians and their favorite, and most importantly, and we can say this now with relative certainty, he ordered the CIA to have Lumumba dealt with. It's been the CIA station chief from the Congo has actually come out with his memoir in the last couple years confirming that an order came from Washington uh, saying that Lumumba should be killed outright, not merely just removed from power. Uh, And this situation bubbled out of control over the long summer and autumn of 1960 as Kennedy was campaigning against Nixon, uh, and this would be among Kennedy's very first headaches as he came into office. All right. This, this I think, should just illustrate where decolonization was as uh, Kennedy entered office. 1960 was the big year. That's when, uh, really, this whole swath of Africa Uh, attained its independence. Algeria was still to come uh, on Kennedy's watch, and then on Johnson's, much of uh, British East Africa got independence. The the holdovers would, of course, be Portuguese Africa, um, the lime green section. Uh, And so this 
spurred, you know, the simple fact of widespread decolonization spurred the belief within the administration that this was happening on schedule, more or less. Some roadblocks were, were being encountered, but this would be a solved problem in the foreseeable future. Uh, and one, one finds a fair amount of this optimism in the internal documentation. Let's talk very briefly about the, uh, the internal division within the Kennedy administration. Um, about Kennedy, first off, um, I think it's important to note that he had himself a pronounced interest in colonial issues and in the problems of, of recently uh, colonized states. In 1957, he'd risen to a lot of acclaim or notoriety for a speech he gave before the Senate calling for um, France to pull out of Algeria. This was a pretty bold thing to say at the time. Um, the Eisenhower administration was displeased with him. Privately, Adlai Stevenson, the two-time uh, candidate for president in the Democratic Party, thought that Kennedy had said something very foolish, um, but he put his name on the map. Uh, he believed, I mean, th th this, this came from his, his, his personal belief that uh, the world was becoming a lot more fluid, that uh, powers, that the great powers in the world were becoming decreasingly, were, were losing their ability to project power and that uh, the, the texture of global of international relations was becoming a lot more turbulent. He, he foresaw really the emergence of a lot of small and mid-sized powers that would be able to really defy the great powers or play them off against each other. Uh, this was this was something that he he wrote in Foreign Affairs that same year, and I think one can find this this belief in an increasingly complicated global system in remarks that he made as a president. He seemed to have actually a very a uh, cautious approach toward non-aligned states in particular. Kennedy was, uh, to be sure, someone who could be very ruthless and very interventionist on occasion. Uh, one wants to, you know, I, I want to set his policy toward the non-aligned states on one side of the ledger. On the other side of the ledger, one can talk about how he dealt with problems in Latin America. His intervention in British Guiana, for example, is something that's gotten a lot of attention of late. Um, or for that matter, there's the better known um, and I think more familiar example of his support of the coup in South Vietnam. He was capable of being ruthless, but I think the key distinction is he believed in intervention when it was within his own block, uh, when it was really within what might be considered his own turf. Non-aligned states played to his more cautious side. He seemed to think that these could not be safely coerced, and moreover, it appealed to him to really, to, to appeal to them as equals. The, the grand scheme, the verbal, uh, the, 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 the grand message that Kennedy liked to promote was of a community of free nations. In, in, in subsequent State of the Union addresses, he spoke of a kind of grand global partnership between the United States, the former colonial states of Europe, and the formerly colonized. And this was, I think, something he, he believed in. Moving on, um, we have his National Security Council staff, and these are the two most important individuals for our purposes, uh, McGeorge Bundy and uh, Robert Comer, and that's the best public image I could get of the gentleman. Um, so Bundy, I think, shared Kennedy's interest and Kennedy's belief that Eisenhower had played the Afri had, had played the non-aligned states very badly. One doesn't find Bundy commenting quite a bit on these issues because like Kennedy, Bundy was concerned with a lot of high-level Cold War concerns in, in the Kennedy uh, years, by and large. Uh, of course, you know, the, the very familiar ones, Berlin, Cuba, uh, Southeast Asia. And uh, so the Bundy record is, is a little harder to trace out. But I think what, from what we do know of Bundy, 
uh, he, sh he did share Kennedy's inclination. And the most important thing about Bundy in this regard is that he hired someone who would uh, follow his and Kennedy's impulses, and this was Bob Comer. Comer was, I think, a kind of a legend of the early National Security Council. He uh, acquired a vast, and I think today it would seem absurd, uh, area of expertise on the NSC staff. At his peak, he was responsible for policy toward North Africa, toward the Middle East proper, South Asia, and a fair amount of Southeast Asia. In the mid-60s, uh, after the Johnson transition, he, he started to pick up part of the Sub-Saharan Africa brief as well. The Bundy NSC staff was famously informal. People could really pick up responsibilities on a, on a whim. It's subsequently become, become parceled out a lot more regularly. Comer was an aggressive uh, practitioner of uh, office politics. He was very good at ingratiating himself with his bosses. He was uh, very forceful. Um, the uh, One of his contemporaries, I won't say who, described him as a... Uh, kiss up, kick down kind of person. Um, but the, the most important thing is he was very effective. He, he had blunt, very pointed memoranda, and he was pretty good at getting his views across. I call these guys pragmatists because they tended to view this, the, the problem of these non-aligned states in the Cold War as a balance of power problem. The key thing to think about, as, as they saw, was how these states could affect the balance of power equation. Unquestionably, some of the larger non-aligned states could be major players in the Cold War. Egypt and Indonesia sat astride major uh, sea lanes of communication. Both of them were either in the in the area of major oil resources or uh, had or possessed them themselves. India was commonly viewed as a, a potential counterweight to China and a potential uh, guarantor of, of the security of Southeast Asia. Uh, and some of these other states, smaller states, still had either, still were either strategically positioned or had national leaders with a fair amount of, of, of regional appeal or, or influence, such as Ghana, which had Kwame Nkrumah, who loomed very large in his immediate neighborhood. So these were states worth dealing with, um, and Comer in particular thought that the United States always had something to gain from engaging them, that uh, the Eisenhower approach of, of trying to basically cajole them into line had failed. Comer was a big believer in, in, in a kind of constant carrot and uh, occasional stick uh, course. Uh, and when, and over the course of time, as, as U.S. opinion began turning against this policy, he was one of the last people to, to really abandon it. He was particularly dogged in his pursuit of it, and that made him, I think, from Kennedy and Bundy's perspective, a very good choice to head it up, because from the, within the NSC, it was his hand that was most often on the tiller. Moving on, um, a second group also supported engagement, and, and specifically anti-colonial policies. Here we have uh, Chester Bowles um, and G. Men and Williams. Looking, he's a little. He was. He wasn't quite that boyish when he was in office. Uh, I swear that might be a yearbook photo. Um, but the, the key thing about this photo is it has Williams's um, bow tie, which he was never without. So it's at least it's representative in that sense. Um, Kennedy made a couple of very prominent, well, actually several very prominent appointments to the upper ranks of the State Department. A third person I might have put here would have been Adlai Stevenson, representative to the UN. Um, but I, I put Bowles and Williams up there as my top two. Bowles had been ambassador to India during uh, the Truman years, and he'd, he'd also represented Connecticut in the House. 
He was very well known on the domestic scene, very liberal, a big believer in the civil rights struggle, as was Williams. These people approached the problem really as a, in a more ideological fashion. They tended to see, to apply a sense of American mission to uh, U.S. policy toward the Afro-Asian world. Uh, they were less influential, however. I think it diminishes them a bit to say this, but in some ways they, their best role was as window dressing, that uh, uh, Williams was enormously pos- uh, popular on the African continent. He, he, in touring Africa in, in, in 1961, he had been re- misreported as having said Africa for the Africans uh, on a stop in Kenya. This was widely reported. It got him quite a bit of, un- of bad press domestically, but within Africa, he became a big celebrity. This was, of course, read, this misquote was read as having been an endorsement for black majority rule um, from all, all the way down to the Cape. Uh, and he was, he was a very popular assistant secretary of state for Africa, but both of these guys were kind of uh, lackluster in, ter- in dealing with bureaucratic infighting. They didn't know how to work the levers very well. That was a skill that Comer had. Uh, They, on the other hand, tended to be marginalized. Bowles was initially under Secretary of State, the number two position at State. By the end of 1961, he he was just viewed, he was simply viewed as ineffective. He was transferred out of that position, given a kind of, uh, I guess, kind of a hand-me-down position as a roving ambassador. It was really a consolation prize of some sort. And George Ball got the job in his place. Um, so they had their they, they they had their appeal, but they were considerably less effective. Um, still, they could often be the most apt observers of sentiment in the non-aligned world. Thirdly, um, here we have Dean Rusk counseling LBJ. Uh, Rusk and his his deputy George Ball. Uh, I, I have here speaking for what I'd term the skeptics. Nobody came into office with Kennedy thinking the United States shouldn't take uh, broader steps to improve its position in the non-aligned world. But as the costs of this policy, particularly as the costs of opposing European colonial powers added up, a number of people, particularly within the State Department, particularly within its European subdivision, began to say, this isn't worth it. We're, We're jeopardizing existing alliances for this policy. And Rusk was prone to giving voice to such concerns. Uh, and th- this was not out of a lack of familiarity with, um, with the non-aligned world or with, with Asia in particular. He'd served in the China-Burma-India theater in the Second World War, and he'd actually played a key role in getting Indonesian independence uh, on the U.S. side in, in the late 40s. But um, it's, it's important to know that, that a lot of internal criticism began to arise as this policy uh, ran into choppier waters. Moving along, our first case study here is the Congo because this really exploded on Kennedy's doorstep. When Kennedy took office, Patrice Lumumba, the uh, prime minister of the Congo, um, who, as as I mentioned earlier, was engaged in a a virtual civil war with the country's president, uh, Joseph Kasavubu, Lumumba was by this point actually dead. He'd been abducted and he died three days before Kennedy's inauguration. Uh, such was the state of the world at the time that this fact was not known for nearly a month. Um, he had been abducted by the, the folks in the yellow Kasavubu pro, uh, provinces um, and uh, flown to Katanga, a separate area of the Congo which had seceded with the assistance of European colonial mining interests and uh, was uns- unceremoniously executed and, and buried in a field. 
news of his death broke fairly early on. Up until that point, Kennedy had been planning policy on the assumption that uh, Lumumba was still alive. And what we know of the early policy planning in the Kennedy administration on the Congo problem was that they hoped to create a coalition government to merge these warring factions before approaching the uh, separate problem of Katangan separatism, uh, which, which I'll get to in a little bit. Now, once uh, word of Lumumba's death broke out, it brought the United States a firestorm of criticism. A lot of African countries um, and other non-aligned countries assumed that the CIA was behind it. And actually, it, it was in a way. I think the, the chain of causation is a little difficult to pin down, but quite clearly we wanted Lumumba dead, and maybe it actually had something to do with him uh, dying. Um, but... In the, immediate, in the immediate wake of, of, of the word getting out, Kennedy faced the implosion of the UN mission that had been tasked to keep order in the Congo. Uh, the country was coming apart, and a, an emergency United Nations mission had been enforcing federal authority for much of the time. Uh, this was under the controversial Secretary General Dog Hammarskjöld. Uh, in the wake of the, assess, uh, of, of the murder, a number of African countries served notice that they would be pulling out. They, they didn't like the way the mission had been going anyway, uh, and this was their opportunity to finally uh, bid, it good bid it goodbye. Now, if the UN mission imploded, the question would then be, how would order be preserved in the Congo at all? And none of the options were good. A direct deployment of European troops would, would anger the Africans. U.S. troops, uh, that, would, that wouldn't be particularly uh, ideal for the, Kennedy, for the Kennedy administration as well. It had a hard time explaining to the public why the Congo was important. Um, the driving concern here was to keep the Soviet Union from creating a client state in the heart of Africa, and the Soviets at least seemed quite eager to supply troops and arms. Their favored clients... Um, led by uh, Lumumba's deputy in this red area here, uh, were quite in intent on importing arms. In Egypt, another one of the non-aligned states was intent on supplying them. The only thing that kept Soviet arms from getting into the situation was the fact that Egypt's neighbor, Sudan, d denied e the Egyptians' air airspace uh, permissions. So Kennedy sought to patch back together the UN mission before it came altogether apart. And he focused on India in the process. India was one of the key contributors. Nehru, too, was intent on pulling out um, and quite disheartened by the way the mission was turning out. But Kennedy began appealing to him, saying, I think we need to pursue a new course here, uh, and particularly one that focuses on binding the Congo back together and preserving its territorial uh, integrity. And uh, he managed to change Nehru's mind, enough so that Nehru only, not only kept the existing Indian troop commitment, but made an additional commitment of nearly 5,000 troops, which was India's largest, uh, most significant uh, post-independence uh, deployment of troops outside of its borders. And this helped keep the UN mission together. Now, this was only the first of Kennedy's worries with the Congo. Uh, over the course of the spring and summer, his administration helped to put together a coalition government, not under the, the favorite of the Europeans, Kasavubu, whom most Africans regarded as complicit in Lumumba's death, but under a compromised figure, a labor leader named Cyril Adula. Kennedy had basically put together, a, as one historian has put it, a non-aligned state in the heart of Africa that was more or less congenial to what uh, he wanted. Um, and this, this sufficed. African states that had been intensely critical of the United States in the wake of uh, Lumumba's death really began to quietly retract their criticism and, and quietly tell the United States it was, do, it was actually doing an okay job. There was still the problem of Katanga. Katanga was being bankrolled 
this separatist province by European mining interests, and the Europeans were not at all intent on seeing it return to the fold. The United States, on the other hand, the Africans and the UN mission thought that this was important to restoring the territorial integrity of the Congo. To make a very long story short, this did happen over fits and starts over the span of 1961 and 62, earning Kennedy again more credibility with the non-aligned states. Um, The Africans and the Indians and the Egyptians all were inclined to praise him for how he ultimately handled the Congo, though... The situation, even in 1963, after Katanga fell to the UN, uh, was, was certainly not anything to lend anyone uh, cause for optimism. Indeed, the Congo would re-erupt in 64. But for that point, it was a success story. Secondly, we have the case of Goa. Goa was quite different because it was basically a fait accompli that India sprung on the world. Uh, as I noted before, Portugal maintained a few territorial enclaves, uh, these areas in red, and... Uh, They did so in, in spite of their complete military indefensiveness. Uh, by 61, the Indians were losing patience, but this was not something that was recognized as a crisis situation as Kennedy came into office. It was dormant, it was quiet, it wasn't, it wasn't generating bloodshed. But over the course of the summer, there were increasing hints that the Indians might be changing policy. Why? Well, for starters, Nehru was facing domestic criticism for the fact that These, neo, these little colonialist enclaves had, had remained on the Indian mainland for now nearly 50, 15 years since independence. But also, the broader picture of the Portuguese empire needs to be taken into concern. India was a major non-aligned state, and it had its credibility to consider with other, major, with, with, with other non-aligned states. Portuguese colonialism in Africa was a major issue Uh, particularly for the Africans, who were the most numerous in the non-aligned caucus. And pressure was beginning to fall on India to really do its part. Uh, kicking over the South Asian part of the uh, Portuguese empire was presumed to have broader benefits. In October, and I think that, that this, was, this really proves, I think, the, at least the, the thesis of international pressure, Nehru hosted visiting African leaders in a seminar in, in Bombay, on the subject of Portuguese colonialism and gave them some notice that India intended to resolve the situation. The U.S. ambassador in New Delhi at that time was uh, John Kenneth Galbraith, a friend of Kennedy and, of course, a very famous economist. Galbraith was, I think, slow to alarm. Um, he didn't, uh, some of his dispatches seemed to say, well, the Indians are probably not going to you know, go about it. This is probably all talk. But as, uh, as, the, as events moved into the late autumn, it started to look like There was more than talk at work. Um, ultimately, the Indians seized the, uh, the enclaves basically over the span of about 46 hours or so, um, and the Portuguese were served with the fait accompli. And on the eve of the Indian action, the United States was, in, was both urging the Indians to stand down. Um, Kennedy and his advisors feared that India was about to set a very dangerous precedent that could be applied elsewhere, which and I'm about to tell you which elsewhere. Um, but also they had something vested in, in, in an international system in which these disputes were not settled uh, through violence. This was particularly a concern of Rusk, who you know, had been one of the architects of the post-war legal system. Uh, so there, there was cause for genuine dismay when Nehru liquidated the Portuguese empire uh, violently. On the other hand, Rusk, um, this is, I think, surprising in his case, was sending pretty forthright messages to Lisbon saying that the Portuguese needed to heed the historical imperatives of the day. His phrasing 
And in the light of how he would handle the later question of the Portuguese empire in Africa, this was strikingly strong language. He was a fairly mild-mannered, mildly worded kind of guy. And the Goa episode brought the Kennedy administration as close as I think it ever came to telling the Portuguese what to do with their colonies. There were later efforts, albeit more gently worded. Still, Goa fell, and it was, I think, a pothole on the road of Indian-American relations. The United States had to vote in favor of a U.N. resolution condemning India for the action, but the Portuguese weren't particularly happy themselves with the United States during that time frame. This, at least, was a colonial question that once it was resolved, it was resolved. It didn't have lasting aftershocks in its immediate area. The West New Guinea crisis, on the other hand, loomed large. Sorry, this is actually a contemporary map. The area we're talking about is, of course, here. At this time, it was not Irian Jaya, its present name, but West New Guinea, and the Dutch had held on to it. The Dutch case was very different from the Portuguese. The Portuguese seemed to think that it was their birthright and their honor to hold on to their empire for another half millennium. The Dutch, on the other hand, argued that it was their responsibility to prepare West New Guinea for independence and that the Indonesians shouldn't have a prohibitive say as to what befell that colony, not least because, as the Dutch argued, the people in West New Guinea were not Malay speakers, as were the majority of people in the Indonesian archipelago. They were ethnically, linguistically distinct, and they should have their own choice. Maybe they'd vote to federate with Indonesia, but it should be up to them. The Indonesian position was simply, this has historically always been a part of Indonesia, of one of the component princely states that had been federated into Indonesia. It belongs to us, end of story. By 1961, it was clear that the Indonesians were thinking of a violent solution to this, not least because they were making increasingly large arms purchases from the Soviet Union. They were thinking of their own Goa-type solution. They might have been able to pull it off, but it would have been a much more pitched affair. As we can see, there's ocean in between. It's not a small enclave. And the Dutch had a navy and an air force that were not to be trifled with, but the Indonesians were arming up, and Kennedy and his advisors were quite concerned about this potential Dutch-Indonesian fracas just offshore while they had other problems to deal with on mainland Southeast Asia. So this was a going concern throughout 1961. There's a timeline that I won't get into filled with kind of moves and counter moves between the Dutch and the Indonesians as they both bargained for U.S. support. But the short of it was that the Kennedy administration ascertained that while the Dutch were interested in any number of diplomatic solutions, including handing off the problem to the U.N., internationalizing it one way or another, the Indonesians wanted the territory, and at most they would offer the Dutch fig leaves to disguise the fact that the Dutch were making a more or less total capitulation. And as the Indonesians bargained back and forth, Sukarno was quite happy to meet Kennedy and thought quite well of him and really thought he could enlist Kennedy's support. They were also stepping up the military pressure. So by the beginning of 1962, the Indonesians were making naval incursions into Dutch waters. Again, no fait accompli was possible, but it seemed pretty ominous. It seemed as though this would at least facilitate a military alliance between Indonesia and the Soviets or perhaps also the Chinese. And Kennedy needed to step up pressure. Rusk 
and the European Bureau had, had sided with the Dutch. Uh, the Dutch were doing everything right in Rusk's book, not least by trying to handle this in a legal fashion. Uh, in the autumn, Rusk invested himself in a Dutch-sponsored effort to internationalize it, to get a UN solution. The Indonesians made clear indication that they had nothing, they wanted nothing to do with it. They actually managed to find enough votes in the UN, particularly among some of their African friends, to vote it down. Uh, but the effect was to alarm the pragmatists, Comer and Bundy, and make them think that the United States had just committed itself to the Dutch side of the affair, which was a bad message to send, and the Indonesians were happy to say that as well. So from there onward, they began to undermine Rusk to Kennedy, and Kennedy himself began to weigh in after having had other things on his plate, notably the Berlin crisis. Uh, Kennedy directed his brother, Bobby Kennedy, to uh, Jakarta and then to The Hague. And in Jakarta, Bobby Kennedy found out once again, yes, the Indonesians wanted it very much, but they let the Dutch have some fig leaves if it would save the Dutch pride. Uh, in The Hague, RFK leaned very hard on the Dutch. Now, leaning on the Dutch, how significant is this? I would, you know, I would pose out to you. You might think, well, the Dutch are a pretty small country. Um, it's, it's, it's maybe an ally that could safely be crossed. Well, I'd say yes and no. The Netherlands uh, was not the largest of the NATO allies, but at the same time, it was a fairly reliable one, and this was at a time when the integrity of the NATO alliance was not entirely certain, and also they were a fairly cooperative uh, ally within the European common market. So I think Kennedy felt he had something to be worried about as far as unduly angering the Dutch, and this was a sensitive domestic political issue for the Dutch. There was a, a strong uh, coalition within the, the Dutch domestic political scene in favor of uh, holding on to West New Guinea. Nonetheless, the United States began to lean very hard on the Dutch, denied the, and seemed at one point to deny the Dutch refueling rights and transit rights through the Panama Canal should they want to move military units to reinforce their garrison. And ultimately, the U.S. pressed upon both the Dutch and the Indonesians a solution that offered the Dutch minimal face-saving while basically giving the Indonesians custody of West New Guinea. The Indonesians promised to hold a referendum at, uh, at, to ascertain the, the future wishes of the West New Guineans. Guess how that came out? Um, and at the, end of, uh, at the end of the crisis, in the late summer of 62, the Kennedy administration seemed to have won a major diplomatic coup as regards its, its uh, relations with Indonesia. And the bottom line here was that they were always much more worried about in losing Indonesia to the Soviet bloc. The rights and the legal, the legal rights of the West New Guineans were not really the issue, and there are, there are some ugly stories I could tell to that effect. Um, the Dutch, I think, actually may have had a point that the West New Guineans might have been better on their own. But um, the, the key concern was keeping the Soviet Union out of the Indonesian archipelago, especially while the U.S. was becoming more deeply embroiled in Southeast Asia. Let's move on very quickly to the fourth case I'd like to detail. This is in some ways, I think, the most important and the most lasting. Scholars of the Cold War all, of course, recognize that Angola is a key part of the story, albeit Angola in the 70s. But to get to Angola in the 70s, we, it, it, it's good to talk about how the, Portuguese, uh, the story of Portuguese Africa unfolded up until that point. Um, Angola erupted into revolt in early 1961. It was joined in revolt in 1963 by Portuguese Guinea, it, though this is the smallest of the three mainland territories. It was kind of the jewel of the crown of Portuguese Africa. Mozambique erupted into revolt in 1964. At the very beginning of this, uh, of this uh, period in, in, in 61, the United States, much as it did in the case of the Congo, voted alongside the Africans at the UN, voting to condemn the Portuguese response. The Portuguese were bombing indiscriminately. They were not 
being particularly careful to uh, distinguish between combatants and civilians in the responses to the revolt in Angola. And just as in the Congo, this pleased uh, a number of African states quite a bit that the United States was really seeming to take their side. But Kennedy was getting cold feet even in 1961. I think the Berlin crisis underscored this to him, but um, there was another factor to uh, consider as well. Portugal was, of course, a NATO ally, but unlike the Dutch, who had eloquent arguments but no trump card, the Portuguese actually had something with which to bargain for leverage, namely the Azor island chain out in the Atlantic. The Azores are instrumental at this point in time for transatlantic flights. They were a vital refueling stop. There weren't a lot of planes that could make the journey without refueling somewhere in the middle. Um, And the Portuguese, the lease that they had offered the United States and, and the NATO allies was coming up for renewal in 1962. The Portuguese indicated that they would suspend they, they, they would deny an additional lease if the United States did not start taking their side a bit more often, uh, you know, acted as more of an ally. And I think this gave Kennedy cold feet. Over the course of 62, you can find him acting, I think, more to uh, tell the Africans what the limitations of U.S. policy were going to be in this regard than actually actively pressing the Portuguese. In 63, Kennedy sought to coax the Portuguese out of Africa, offering them financial carrots, but sticks were off the table. And the Portuguese had a very romantic conception of their empire. George Ball, um, who Kennedy sent to Lisbon at one point, came back saying, you know, we thought this country was a dictatorship, but it actually turns out that it's a triumvirate. There's, there's Salazar, the dictator, but it, ter- it turns out he's sharing power with Vasco da Gama and Henry the Navigator. Uh, and they, they, didn't make much, they did not make much headway without using sticks. And the key concern that the Africans had was that NATO munitions, U.S. manufactured munitions, were being employed in the Portuguese uh, counterinsurgency wars. This, I think, over time is important because it generated a, a real widening chasm between African, particularly, expectations and, and uh, what the United States was able to deliver. Kennedy met with African leaders during the summer of 63, notably Tanzania's uh, Julius Nyerere, who implored him to do something, and uh, he said he really wasn't going to be able to help very much. By 63, this, you know, th- th- this late point in his, uh, his presidency in the summer, uh, his, his, his willingness to really get in front of the crowd on colonial issues was, was much diminished. Um, so this takes us up to our conclusion. Uh, this, this produced a widening chasm over time. Um, Kennedy didn't, Kennedy, I think, never really faced, uh, after the initial problems of, of, say, the Congo and after the, you know, the long headache of, of West New Guinea, an eruption of, of, of outcry, but this was actually passed to his successor, Lyndon Johnson, who faced real difficulties um, over his Congo policy in 1964. I I can get into this in a bit. Um, Kennedy had, I think it's fair to say, some some early successes, despite the fact that he didn't really have a doc. He never came out with quite a doctrine on on decolonization. Some of his advisors, both the pragmatists and the liberals, would have liked him to make a declarative, definitive statement about this, but the circumstances weren't auspicious, and he was very cautious about jeopardizing European alliances. Uh, at the same time, though, early actions tended to reinforce the expectations of non-aligned states, particularly in Africa, where the, uh, the, the main enduring issue, um, Portuguese Africa, was the, the foremost concern. So there was this widening chasm between where the policy was going on the U.S. end and, and what um, non-aligned states, uh, particularly the Africans, were expecting. And this, I think, uh, this was, a, as I would argue, a fateful prelude for what occurred in 1964, and I'm coming to the end of, uh, I think, what, what my time should be safely, but what I'd say was, 
in, in, at the end of 1964, Johnson authorized a military intervention in the Congo to rescue a number of white European settlers from uh, black African rebels. And this brought an unprecedented, really uh, r- remarkable amount of, out- of outrage from Africans at the UN, which I think made even the earlier uh, condemnations of, of Lumumba's death pale by comparison. And this was, I think, a watershed. This was known as the Stanleyville operation, the, the, the city where the, the hostage operation was held. It was a the, the city then known as Stanleyville. And uh, at, from that point onward, the United States, which had often been rhetorically grouped away from the European colonial powers, was, was increasingly being grouped alongside them. This was, I think, a fateful prelude. Though Stanleyville is now, I think, something that's been shrouded a bit in the mists of time, it was a moment where the United, that, that I think augured a more confrontational and bitter uh, relationship between the United States and much of the non-aligned world. And I'll conclude on that note. I'd be happy to take some questions. Thank you, everyone. I think for some, for some of the, for ambassadors and maybe for some of the State Department liberals, these kind of, these humanitarian concerns were, I think, on the table. But for the people really making policy, uh, it, this really, this was a story of, of, of Cold War concerns by and large, and uh, and how. And, and how colonial and how decolonization could be, how these straits could be safely negotiated uh, en route to creating a more politically favorable global <laughs> environment. I think the Kennedy folks saw this as an age to be transited, uh, and what, hopefully, once they emerged on the far side of these straits, they, they could uh, they could face a more conducive world environment where the Soviet Union could not ally quite so readily with uh, with African and Asian countries on this, this shared area of concern. Um, and yes, as, as far as concern for the, for the locals, uh, for you know, for, for natives was was there. It, it, it's, it's I think more often more often absent than present. There's a story from West New Guinea that I'm happy to relate here. Uh, Comer, um, in particular, uh, at one point when trying to convince Kennedy that he needed to uh, brush Rusk away from siding with the Dutch, uh, Comer found a, a book by an anthropologist, the headhunters of New Guinea it was, and said, you know, he attached a note to it saying, self-determination for these guys, what a joke. And he, he tried through Bundy and then through Arthur Schlesinger to have this passed to Kennedy. But I think both gentlemen saw sense in, in, in shielding the president from this. Um, but, yeah. Um, well, the issue about the, well, the other half of this about the decolonization, it seems to me, you, you point out that Kennedy had sort of bias toward decolonization, including his rather risky but in all your cases, in no case is that more important than the Cold War. In other words, that became the Cold War thing. There wasn't a decolonization policy. Yes. It was all through. It was the dominant issue of the Cold War. I would say that's quite right. Other folks? 
Could you, I had a sense that you were finishing abruptly. Yes, yeah. Could you elaborate a little bit more? Because I had a sense coming in here today that you were going to question the conventional view that Kennedy made a real contribution here to solving this problem, whatever the motives. Yeah. A real change in policy away from the Eisenhower administration's policy, which had been purely in support of Europe. So, and you start out indeed with that frame. And the indication is that Kennedy really didn't get where the conventional wisdom says he got. Well. By the time of the widening chasm and the faithful brotherhood. Well, I don't know where the conventional, what you allude to in the way of conventional wisdom. I would say Kennedy. I'm an Indonesia specialist, and so I see everything through that window. Okay. And I think it was the Cold War, as John Miller said. But I think, you know, when I looked at it at the time, and I was not there at the time, but I was certainly following it at the time. And it seemed to me that Kennedy was making the right decision as far as Indonesia was concerned, whatever the motivation for that was. And so I was also a supporter of Kennedy's policy against the Eisenhower policy. I was as hostile to John Foster Dulles as one could be at the time, I suppose. And as supportive of Kennedy and the decolonization of nationalism, the implications of that as one could be at the time. So what I'm interested in is what happens next in your view here. Well, I think over the course of 63, it starts, I think, a sense of fatigue starts to settle in. Rusk at one point says to Williams in a letter, really, what are the limits of this policy? One or two more Congos and we've had it. I think their experience in the Congo, but also with the West New Guinea negotiations, which are an absolute headache, Sukarno, I think, acts difficult in a number of ways, including at the very end he starts changing the terms of the agreement and threatening war if these are not met, prompting Kennedy to have to talk him down over a letter. I think by this point there's a certain sense of fatigue, and the question of the Azores are now on the table. So I think in other instances they might have been able to go further, but a sense of limitations was starting to constrain them on the one really active issue in 63. But I would still contend that Kennedy represented, actually as the title of my thesis has it, a genuine departure from Eisenhower's policy. I think though Eisenhower had been trending a little bit in the direction that Kennedy would follow, I think a breach like what you have with the Dutch, especially, I don't think that would have occurred to the Eisenhower administration. And I think certainly the reversal of policy in the Congo is stark and revealing. A lot of the Eisenhower personnel who had been hostile to Lumumba and his followers were basically yanked out of the country, especially the ambassador Timberlake. Is it that Vietnam takes over? Well, that's not so much. Well, yes, as to the second part of your question, Vietnam gets to be a very big issue and I think in the long run plays the largest role in defeating the policy of engagement. I don't personally think, I mean this takes us into other material, that Johnson was as invested in it. There's a variety of reasons and I think it's something I'd like to probe more over time. But among other things, he didn't have the intellectual interest. He was more irritable, I think, when greeted with the dissenting voices of non-aligned states at the UN, particularly after he's deployed into Vietnam. And he uses tactics with aid that Kennedy, by and large, did not use. 
Stanleyville is a, is a key episode because what, what, what has happened is that the, the Katangan, whom uh, the Congolese most associate with Lumumba's death, has been actually uh, put into the prime ministership of the Congo. Um, and this is, this is once again precipitated a civil war in the country. So this is, and also triggered a lot of fears in Africa because I think one thing I should mention with the Congo is they have, is that Af- other African leaders look at this country and they say there but for the grace of God. Uh, this could happen to us. Uh, Europeans could, you know, could, could sponsor an insurrection within our borders and uh, undermine us. It, it, it could happen just as easily. Uh, and when Johnson winds up on the wrong side of this issue, he angers them far more than I think he, uh, he, he really could apprehend. But this, this in turn, is, is really a prelude to a lot of, of the, you know, the serious disputes which happen over, over food aid in particular, um, and Vietnam as we move into 65 and 66. There's a sense in which, in, in which the Cold War, and I'm coming back really to where, you know, to where John was uh, trying to put more emphasis on the Cold War in your presentation. It, 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 what we should have done, what U.S. policy should have been toward Vietnam was to recognize that the Vietnamese communists were also nationalists, and that, that was what was mainly driving them. And we didn't have any interest, actually, um, in making them non-communist, as long as they remain nationalist, which everything in Vietnamese history told us that they would be with regard to China and with regard to the Soviet Union. But we were so blinded by the Cold War notion that uh, uh, that there was a communist center in Moscow and that everything was directed from that and that we had to design our policy for that. And this is also the case with, with regard to Indonesia then because Sukarno, as you already talked about, he became, he, he wasn't very grateful. <laughs> Kennedy saved him um, because Indonesia could not have taken West Syrian from the Dutch by force. They did not have, as you were alluding to also, they didn't have weaponry but they put up a show about that. But now, we see that even now. Uh, the Australian, the Indonesian Navy uh, is incapable against the Australian Navy on the East Timor uh, issue. So how much worse it was uh, at that time. So, so uh, Kennedy saved Sukarno and Sukarno was not at all appreciative of that. Indeed, he aligns himself more and more closely with the communists. And so this, this becomes then the deciding factor. Sukarno is a communist. He gets pushed into, quote unquote, I mean, he gets pushed into that camp. Not much different in the, different in the final analysis from where John Foster Bellis saw him as the Manichaean that you uh, talked about before. You're either on our side, George Bush too, right? You're either, you're either on our side or you're on the other side. And as Sukarno was seen as on the other side, of course the Vietnamese, you couldn't make a distinction between Vietnamese communists who are also nationalists. It's way too for these policy I, th- I think as long as, I mean, we're getting into maybe what if Oswald had missed territory. Um, Kennedy, I think, was capable of, of, of making that distinction, though he didn't really have any contact, I think, with the North Vietnamese. And I think by that point, the categories were probably too entrenched. He'd met Sukarno a couple of times. He didn't like Sukarno. He thought Sukarno was frivolous. And apparently Sukarno had a penchant for wanting to talk about Hollywood starlets. Um, but uh, well, Sukarno did know about Kennedy's relationship with Marilyn Monroe. So. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the same about yeah, uh, <laughs> but um, I think uh, you know Kennedy at least even Sukarno. I mean, what you're alluding to is, of course, the fact that Sukarno then started to raise trouble with the British project of, of fusing uh, the Malayan Peninsula with uh, British territories on Borneo, the, the project of Malaysia. And this was raging on into 63. Kennedy's last thoughts on Indonesia were to still try to, to pull something out, to offer uh, Sukarno a package deal 
uh, of aid in exchange for backing down. And instead it fell to Johnson, and Johnson's immediate recourse was to try to contain Sukarno and to try to tell, and to basically take the carrot off the table and start really speaking more in terms of sticks. And Sukarno responded very badly to it. Not least he hadn't met Johnson. He never met Johnson. Kennedy he'd met twice. Um, but, uh, no, I mean, I think... Th- Kennedy, at least, I think, had a tendency to be able to separate nationalism from communism. But once he's out of the picture and once his advisors are increasingly marginalized, that dividing line is is itself increasingly obscured. Where where do you think the Algerian case fits in with um, the late Eisenhower and early Kennedy administration and the greater uh, decolonization movement? Yeah, it's been uh, it's been done quite well. So I, as, as I was approaching this, I decided I couldn't put Algeria on the table in this chapter because Matthew Connolly has, has handled it. But I mean, actually, it's, it, it catches um, it actually catches I think both of them acting a little bit quote unquote out of character. Eisenhower I think has has caused to feel impatient with De Gaulle. Um, Kennedy, on the other hand, as facing facing the possibility of a coup in France in 61, is inclined to give the general a bit of a bit of room. The, the, there there were any number of kind of crisis planning scenarios for what happens if De Gaulle is assassinated that I, I looked at, uh, for example. Um, the thing is, I think. Both of them have a sense uh, during the critical transition period that this is going, it's going to happen soon enough, I think. 